It's awesome to uh, see you guys here. Uh, thanks for coming tonight. I can't, I can't get his love out of my mind. You know, it's like you sing a song about his extravagant love, and <clears throat> like, what really motivates you? You know, like sometimes we have these tasks that come before us, and sometimes we do them with a little bit more like gumption, right? That's a word my grandma used to use. You know, sometimes we we, we give a little bit more gusto and we like get it done. There's some things that like motivate you. Maybe it's a loud yelling coach or uh, the, the promise of a reward or like a good thank you from your husband and wife. Like what more motivation do we need as Christians than the fact that we have a king who died for us yet knowing every sin that we have? Like what I, I, I struggle thinking about what else we need. I, I feel like like you and I and, and, and this is to, I feel like like. Like faithfulness is like out here somewhere to be grasped or to be touched. And we're like just in this journey after it. It's some like innate thing. And that if we just find the right practical like equation, if we just read like the best self-help book that we possibly can and we figure out how to like really finally read our Bible every day for five minutes, like somehow we'll get there. And, and, and then, then that becomes our motivation. But friends, like you and I know full well, like after a few days, like that motivation just fades what if finally, Christians, we were just motivated simply by the love of our, great, of our great King? You know, like what if deep down in our hearts, like that was really what made our heart beat? And like that was the message that we couldn't get off our lips. I believe wholeheartedly that you naturally talk about what you love. So are you constantly communicating about the love of God? Hey, let me tell you about something. Uh, this King that I know, his name is Jesus. Like he died for me yet knowing every sin that I had. Like he loves me and, and, and I can't even describe to you an incredible amount. Really, like, tell me more about that love. Well, here, like, come with me and, and we'll, we'll go on this journey together with this community of people that are all about figuring out better how to love Him and to love people. Like, what if finally that became our motivation, friends? What really motivated? Do you need anything else, Christians, in this room? Do you need anything else? Because we're acting like we do. We're acting like we need A plus B equals C. What if it was just His love and that was the motivation, period? And then we just came and we couldn't wait to experience more of his love. We couldn't wait to talk about more of his love. We couldn't wait to tell each other about the ways that he had loved us this week. What if that became our heart's cry, friends? Last week, um, if you've been journeying with us, you know that we're studying the gospel of Dr. Luke. Everyone say, Dr. Luke. Yes, thank you for that participation. I feel the participation in this room. I love it. Now, Dr. Luke is writing to a man named Theobos who's a Roman official. The entire gospel of Luke is written from the perspective of Luke wants to prove the case of Jesus Christ to this Roman official named Theophilus. Last week, we saw Jesus say that we are to wait for his return because he's coming back like a thief in the night, that he's going to return and, and, and it's going to come unexpectedly. And so because of that, we must be dressed with readiness, lamps kept burning. We must be up even in the second and the third watch of the night. There, it, it places in, in, like you and I, this great sense of urgency. And so I, I share this analogy with you, like many of you have had babysat before, and when the parents leave at six, it's utter chaos until they call and say they're on their way home, because like you can pick everything up like really nice and tight, and then the problem is he's not calling. Like we won't have time to clean it up. And so what he told us last week through beautiful words is to clean it up now. Like why wait another day? And again, I ask, what more motivation do you need than, than those words? Like, do you need a clearer picture? Do you want them to put it on an extra sketch for you? You know, like, you guys remember those? Like, all right, here's what I want you to do. No, no, no. Like, should the, and there should be nothing else, friends, that you and I need than just that sense of urgency. Tonight, uh, the teaching 
with the drum beat behind, which I love. It's, might as well talk about it. Yeah, it's going to be awesome. Um, tonight, tonight's teaching is entitled, like, Really, Really Hard Teaching of Jesus, Part 1. Okay? Creative. I thought about that all day long. All right? Um, it, 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 like, there's going to be the first three verses here. Or, or, or each of us, we're going to be like, like what? Like, what is, what is he saying here? And so without further ado, for Jesus' really hard teaching part one, let's get there. Luke chapter 12, verse 49. Again, did I, did I say already it's great to have you here? Because it is. I love worshiping with family and community and being able to come together and to wrestle with the hard text. Verse 49. I have come to bring, by the way, this is Jesus talking. I have come to bring fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. Yeah, anyone else like, yes! Like, that's awesome! Can you imagine everyone listening at this point? Like, everyone's smacking high fives, like, amen, brother, preach that, you know? No, like, no, I just picture the crowd at this point. Remember, uh, last week we saw that he had turned from the disciples to the crowd, so he's speaking to the crowd. Uh, I've come to bring fire to the earth, and I wish it were already kindled. Um, you'd be like, uh, uh, check, like, excuse me? Like, fire? Because in your context, when you think of fire, like it brings up all of these connotations. First of all, though, don't you love the words when Jesus says, I have come? It should bring like exclamation point to this text. Why? Because every time that he says he has come, he brings focus to why he's come. In Luke chapter 4, we saw that he came to set the captives free. Anybody? We saw that he came to set the prisoners free. Anybody in here experiencing that freedom of Christ? Anybody? Yeah. Uh, we saw also in Luke chapter 4 that he came to preach the message about the kingdom of God. He said in Luke chapter 4 that he came to make the blind see and to make the lame walk. And so we've seen all of these things about why he's come. This like has a little bit different of a jingle to it, doesn't it? Like I've come to set the captives free. I've come to bring fire to the earth. And, and like, like what is he saying here about fire? There's ten mentions of the word fire. In the Gospel of Luke, three of them refer to like actual fire, like let's all get warm around the campfire and roast some, you know, marshmallows or something. It'll be great. One of them is in reference to the Holy Spirit. Now, in the in the early parts of Acts, after Jesus is, re- is resurrected from the dead, what does Scripture say? That it's like tongues of what coming down? Yeah, tongues of fire. And so it's possible, right? that he's speaking of some type of like Holy Spirit type connection here. But the problem is there's one mention towards that in the Gospel of Luke, especially when you put this text in the context of last week and tonight, like it must be judgment. Remember last week, like we saw four examples of like one person that was ready and three that weren't, and all the three that weren't were judged. And so, hold on, like there's six mentions of fire and judgment in Luke, so... Jesus is saying that I've come to bring judgment to the earth. And, and, and then it gets, and I wish it were already kindled. Like, does that not seem a little bit strange to any of you? Like kindling, and I, I know nothing about fire. I'm not a good fire. Man, we were on the ski trip, and Jason Odell and Justin, like, you guys were good at, like, making the fire, you know. Right, like, you get some kindling, and you, like, get it stirring. But, like, kindling is something that starts the fire. Right, Brian Short? Right, you live on a farm. Okay. Is kindling something that starts the fire? Yes, it does. Thank you, brother, for that. Uh, I appreciate that. So if, if kindling is something that starts the fire, then Jesus said, I've come to bring fire to the earth, and I wish the fire had already started. Now, if you study Micah chapter 3 and 4, it brings us like great like, clarity to what uh, fire is, and, and that it can almost be, like Scripture will later say, talking about a potter, 
a refiner's fire. Like that it, like somehow, like somehow the fire for the pottery can refine and hone. And so I think that Jesus is saying, as I have come to bring judgment, yes, but to refine the people whom I have called according to my purpose. And I wish that it were already done. Doesn't it bring a great amount of focus to why he's come? Like he, he's giving allusion to, I wish you were already going because I can't wait to fulfill the purpose that I have on this earth. I love that about Jesus. He is always, listen, nothing distraction, distracts him from, from his purpose ever. His eyes are always focused on the Father. His heart is always focused on the mission. He is always going after what God had called him to do. And, and, and nothing gets in the way. How, how are you doing with that? How are you doing with that? Like if you were to clearly define, like, okay, I feel like me as a person, my purpose is to do this. How are you doing just with letting nothing distract you from that? Like going after it wholeheartedly, just like Christ. Um, the hard thing is about this teaching is, He goes on, like that's not all that he has to say. Uh, He says this, But I have a baptism to undergo, and how distressed I am until it is completed. So if you're a Bible scholar, or at least Captain Obvious, you're like, "Uh, you've been baptized before, Jesus. So like, is this some type of theological uh, conviction towards like dual baptism? Like you get baptized, and just for the fun of it, you're like, let's go again, it'll be great. You know, like, like what's happening here? Well, in uh, Mark chapter 10, verse 38, listen to this, this is classic. Um, James and John uh, are hanging with Jesus. And they're talking about when Jesus gets in his glory. And they say, hey, Jesus, um, when you get in your glory, can one of us sit on your left and one of us sit on your right? Like, it'll be awesome that way. You know, like, we'll help protect you. It'll be awesome. And Jesus says this phenomenally. He says, can you drink the cup that I will drink from? And can you be baptized with the baptism that I will be baptized with? A lot of baptized there, I know. But what he's saying is, can you share in my death? In ancient Greek literature, to be baptized was to be immersed with catastrophe. In baptism that you and I know, it's to be immersed with water and brought out symbolically as a new creation. So what Jesus is saying is that he is going to be immersed with the baptism of the wrath of God. He's going to be immersed with the baptism of the sin of the entire world. He will undergo a baptism. And and, and what does he say? He says, I am distressed until it is completed. Uh, You remember that John records in his gospel that Jesus on the cross says what? Uh, John chapter 19, he says, it is what? It is finished. Can you picture those words being said? He's just communicated through all the Gospels, why he's come. And he makes it clear here that he has come for a very distinct purpose, and that's to undergo a baptism, an immersion of the wrath and sin of God, to be the, to be the debt that would be paid so that we could somehow be connected again with the Father. And he says, I can't wait till it's completed, so much so that on the cross he would say, it is finished. Again, what more motivation do you need? Like, what else do you need? Do you need anything else besides those words coming from a Savior? Saying, what I came to do, I did, and it's done. Like, it's like we're still waiting on some completion. We're like still waiting for Him to do something else. But He said, it's finished. Like, it's over. The debt has been paid. Can I get an amen? Now, the difficult thing about this teaching is that it continues. Look at this, verse 51. 
Do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you. But what's the word? Yeah, it's like some of you have, you know, like Jesus in his choir boy suit singing like peace on earth and mercy. My hope. Is that even the line from Joan of the World? I don't know. Right. But we have this we have this image of Jesus like coming to bring peace, which which he does. Right. I mean, this seems like a contradiction. You're like, hold on a second. You've you've come to bring peace. But 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 then in this text, you're, you're saying that you've that you've actually come to bring Division. Well, he's come to bring peace to those whom he's called according to his purpose. As you and I well know, there's great peace in knowing the Savior of the universe. Amen? But what he means by division is that if this were a beach, wouldn't it be awesome if it were? Amen? Some of you guys are there. Don't go there mentally anymore. He literally draws a very distinct line in the sand. Jesus came to divide. Because what the cross would do is it would make the entire creation either sit on one side of the cross or the other. What the cross would do, what the cross would force, what Jesus came to do, would say that you were either with me or against me. There's no in-between. He drew the line in the sand and said, where will you stand? What will you do with the cross? Do you care? Do you accept it? Do you receive it? Is it worth dying for? Is it worth daily taking up your cross just like I did and following me? Like, what are you going to do? In that way, Jesus came to bring division because he had to. It was a forcible issue. He was forcing the issue. You decide either either me or not. And he goes on to say what this would look like in verse uh, 52. From now on, there will be five in one family divided against each other. Three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law. I'm confused now. And daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Let me sum up because there was a lot of in-laws there. Like your family will be separated because of me. Some of you know very well what this looks like. Some of you have parents. Who don't know Jesus. So we have siblings who don't know Christ. Father who don't know Christ. Grandma and grandpa and in-laws that don't know Christ. You relate to this. You know the hurt and the pain. That it, that it has to know that. When you're sitting around at Christmas. And you're looking across the table. That you're not in one accord with the person sitting across the table. Like you know how bad it hurts. Come on. Like you know like when you want to share with that person. Like what God's doing in your life. You know that it will cause like some awkward dinner silence. You know? You, you know like the stirrings that happen. Um, I don't. Most of my family, if not all, especially my close family, believe in Jesus. But, but to help kind of paint a picture, I've asked someone to come tonight and to share with us about what division looks like in her family. So if you guys can give it up for Angela Stichter as she comes, that would be awesome. Angela, um, thank you for sharing. I appreciate it very much. She uh, had some interesting dynamics. And again, like to, to help paint this picture, like I can't share from my experience. And so, Angela, would you mind just like sharing with everyone and giving us a, a clear picture of, so you're growing up in a household that doesn't believe Christ. Like what were the dynamics 
like before, right, you accepted Christ, and then like what was the, especially initially, the dynamics after you said yes to Jesus in your household? Um, one of my biggest memories growing up was when I, I was in elementary school. I was a worrier pretty much all my life because I didn't really know what was absolute, what was going to be consistent. And I would ask my mom, I'd cry going to bed at night, what if when I die, there's nothing? Like, just like when I go to sleep, like, there's just nothing. And my mom would say, oh, you're not going to die for a long time, don't worry. You know, she would just kind of put off the question. But that worry was consistent throughout my life. I didn't feel like anything, anything was constant. I couldn't rely on anything as an absolute. And... um there was constant conflict in my, my house. My parents said yes to everything. I was allowed to do whatever I wanted, but that doesn't mean that everything was peachy. There was still conflict because we had um, a father who wasn't guiding us in the way of Christ. So if, if he's not for Christ, like you were saying, he's against him. And so the whole, the whole upbringing was full of just... Um, inconsistencies and I didn't know what to rely on so I was constantly worried Um, after I became a Christian I had to deal with that the way that I would react to things and I had to learn to put trust in in God again and that um, that was going to take standing up to my parents in some ways and how was I going to balance that with honoring them so it was a constant struggle of how do I honor my parents and honor God at the same time that's uh, I, I know that a lot of people can relate to that for sure. And what I mean, so especially as you began to grow up and grow older, like what were the main, what were the real struggles? What were the main challenges in the household? You know, just being divided, especially being a teenager, hearing one story or or seeing one thing from your parents and then experiencing another. Uh, you kind of expect your parents to be the parents, the ones that know what's right and what's wrong and (laughs) but I felt like a parent a lot of my growing up um I didn't I I mean I know a lot of people had it worse than I did but I would say the biggest struggle was knowing what godly wisdom was and knowing that my parents were not applying it and having to discern in every situation okay do I do what my parents want me to do or what God wants me to do and sometimes the godly wisdom would go against what was logical and that was when I'd really come into conflict with my parents because they'd be like, you're, you're ridiculous. Um, when I moved up to St. Louis, they wanted me to move in with Justin. They're like, you're going to save so much money if you do that. And I was like, what? Like what dad tells his daughter to move in with a guy? But I mean, I mean, I knew where he was coming from, but it just, my, my godly wisdom and logic didn't make sense to him and his no longer made sense to me, his worldly wisdom. So. Wow. That was and, the and biggest now, struggle. Now you're a mother, a wife. Obviously, years have gone by. Okay, so like describe, and, and I'm just sure that people can relate to this. What are the dynamics now? You know what I mean. So now, like you've you've grown older, and your parents see you as not like this teenager anymore, but as this mom and wife and and uh, caregiver. What is what are the dynamics now that you're experiencing still? Uh, well, they. It doesn't get easier to make decisions because they still feel judged when I choose to do things in a way that they wouldn't. Um, They feel like I'm rejecting them or my upbringing in some way, (laughs) which is kind of funny. But um, they, (laughs) I don't know, there was no consistency, so it's just, I don't know. But uh, 
I thought it would get easier. Oh, I'm an adult. You know, they'll get used to it. And every time things start to get really good between us, there's some kind of conflict that comes up. But um, I would say that um, I just have to constantly be remembering that I I'm not called to be perfect because that's one one thing I struggle with is I think, oh, I have to be perfect in front of them because I'm their example. Um, but I, I have to be constantly discerning and listening to God's uh, will in my life. And I, I just keep thinking of Anna, our little girl, and how much they love her and how much that has brought us closer but how much it can also divide in the decisions we're making bringing her up. But um, I just pray that she can be a light to them where I haven't been able to. Um, because, I mean, you know, grandparents love their grandkids in a different way than they love their kids. Sure. But, um, and I just hope that, I, d- I don't know, <laughs> I keep hoping it'll get easier, but it doesn't. Um, there's still conflicts and fights, but... Um, I just hope that I'm giving God the glory, and in that, I'm honoring my parents um, through that. Sure. And I just try to be grateful and appreciative as I can. But remember, I'm not here to please people. I'm here to please Christ. So That's right. Well, Angel, I appreciate you sharing. It's, it's on my heart. I mean, I know, I know if we were to go around in this room, like story after story, right? Some of you closer than others. Some of you parents, others of you more extended family. Just because Scripture says that Jesus came to divide, uh, He also says that that we should pray for one another. Uh, we also He also said that that we should cry out for one another. And and just because the cross will force the issue, like I'm still praying for God's grace to be revealed to those who don't know it. Amen. And so here's what I want to do right now is I I know there's a lot of relationships represented here, but I just want to take a second as a community and just pray for the family members in here that don't know Jesus. And, and let's just let's just spend a couple moments just crying out for Angela and, and all the rest of us that have family members who just simply don't know the grace of the gospel. Uh, let's just cry out for God's grace to be abound and to reveal it to them. Let's pray. Lord God, we, we ask for your grace and mercy to be reflected through us to all of our family members who do not know you. We ask, Lord Jesus, that you'll continue to give us strength and courage to be a reflection of you at all times. I cry out for the souls and lives of our family members, Father, our close friends who do not know you, Lord Jesus. If it be your will, Lord God, we ask that you would bring them to yourself, that God, if you would choose, that you would use us as an agent and even allow us to watch you work in their life to be able to reflect and, and, and receive and imagine more of what your love and grace looks like. So God, we just give every single one of these family members to you and say that God, just use us how you can, but God, just show them your love, your mercy, your power, your grace, and your faithfulness despite our faithlessness, Lord Jesus. We love you in your awesome name. Amen. You guys give it up for Angela. Thanks for sharing. Angela, I appreciate it. If you're struggling with the fact that Jesus came to divide, then what you're struggling with is that he was forcing the issue with the cross. Here's the problem in America. Jesus drew the line in the sand, but the bar is so low for American Christianity that we've created this gray area on both sides of the line. And so we're walking around thinking in America and our culture that this is Christianity. That the bar that has been set so low because Jesus divided it 
but then we just begin to confuse it based upon what our culture defines Christianity as. The moment that we as believers start to adhere to a culturally perceived gospel is the moment that we have perverted the gospel in the worst way. The moment that we begin to look to America and say, America, define the gospel for us, and we leave the scripture, is the moment that we begin to believe a gospel that is no gospel at all, friends. That line was supposed to force the issue, but as Americans, the bar has become so low that we've become confused about what Christianity is. And so because of that, our churches and our small groups and our communities have become coddling sessions. And we gather, and all we do is we pat each other on the back and say, you know what, I know you screwed up, but the grace of God is awesome. It will sustain us. We must just keep fighting. Hey, And the next day, it'll get better this time. And all we're doing, friends, is we're just gathering and just patting each other on the back, never pushing each other to become more like Christ. Massive coddling sessions of Christianity all across America. And when that happens, we never get to the lost. The lost are never loved. Mission is never outreach. Because all mission is, is making sure that my accountability partner and the people in my small group and all the people in my church feel good about their relationship with Christ. And so a brother comes day after day and says, you know what, I'm struggling with the same thing and the same thing and the same thing. And we keep saying, like Jason already alluded to, it's alright buddy. It's alright buddy. Dude, it'll get better tomorrow. It'll get better tomorrow. I'm not saying that we need to start taking baseball bats to each other, don't hear me. I'm not saying that it's like, hey, 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 I'm struggling. And all of a sudden we're like kung fu. You know what I mean? I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is, is when the coddling sessions stop, that is when the line will be clear and Christians in America will start adhering to the biblical gospel. And the biblical gospel, like what else do we need to be motivated We're we're no longer having discussions of, you know what, I've been on the hamster wheel for like three years. Because we we stop relating to the hamster wheel. We're like, what hamster wheel? Are you kidding me? I signed up for the gospel and that's what I want. Oh, but Mark, we have a sinful nature. Oh, I know. I know. We talk about it all the time. It's on every bulletin board of ours. We pin it up on every poster. I struggle with the sinful nature. And there it is. And I know it's a reality, but how long are you going to use it as a crutch? Jesus said that we're co-heirs in the kingdom of God. That yes, we have the sinful nature, but we're co-heirs with Him. The line has been drawn, the gray area has been created, and our churches and our small groups are just coddling sessions, and the lost never get loved because of it, because we're spending all of each, all of our time on each other. When we start looking each other in the eye and saying, you know what, it's time to pick it up. Like, quick to repent. That's the mark of a Christian. Denying oneself, laying it all down, sacrificing self, that's the mark of a godly Christian. When will we stop saying to each other, you know what, like like I think, like I really think you're following a gospel that's not the gospel at all. And so in your mind you're like doing all these things, but but when are you going to learn sacrifice? When are we as brothers? All of our conversation is going to be, Doug, how are you doing with the Word of God? How is it causing your heart to break over the lost? How is your marriage? How are 
How's the mission going on the college campus? Are you so obsessed with the gospel that it's causing you to just to, just to flourish? But instead, we're like, hey, it's all right. It's all right. It's going to get better tomorrow. And I believe through Christ it will. And I believe through Christ that when a church in America and this culture decides that the coddling sessions are done, I believe that the love will be lost in that community. Or or that that the loss will be loved in that community. I believe that all of a sudden we'll see that we don't need to start, that we don't need to spend as much time with one another. We come to church and a small group for encouragement so that we can be sent back out. Do you guys understand? We come here not to be coddled, but to be challenged with the Word of God, to let the Word of God convict and cut, and then we go back out and love the lost. An overabundance of mercy, an overabundance of grace, an overabundance of love for the lost. We come back at at our small group, and we deal, and we wrestle, and we struggle, so that tomorrow at work, or in school, or at college, we're ready for the mission field. We're ready to love the lost. We're ready to spread the gospel of grace. And nothing will get in the way of that gospel. Friends, he drew the line in the sand, and I'm fearful that you're in the gray area. I'm fearful that people are looking at you and saying, like, I, I don't know where you stand with the cross. Friends, I'm tired of coddling one another, aren't you? Aren't you ready to start looking each other in the eye and say, let's push further? He called us to so much more. Let's stop our self-loathing and our accountability partner pity parties like Jason already talked about. And let's start grabbing each other arm in the arm and saying, let's go. The cross before us, the world behind. That's what he came to do. He came to force the issue. So that true Christians would take a stand for the real, true gospel. Let's continue on. It's a little funny here. Verse 54, he said to the crowd, it's a little count on Kent here. When you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say it's going to rain, and it does. And when the south wind blows, you say it's going to be hot, and it is. Hypocrites! Exclamation point. You know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky. How is it that you don't know how to interpret this present time? Now what would happen, is what he's talking about, is a wind comes off the Mediterranean Sea, billowing this cloud. And he's saying, you do a really good job of looking up and seeing a rain cloud and saying, it's going to rain. Like, beautiful, right? Cindy Pressler style, you know what I mean? This is great. What's the Channel 2 guy, Dave Murray? Yeah. Heidi is obsessed with Dave Murray. I don't know, like, Heidi's entire family, like, all they do is TiVo the weather on, like, every channel. And they're like, let's check out Sidney Pressler. Let's check out Dave Murray. You know what I mean? Down on Ken. It'll be great. Give away an umbrella. He says, like, you're so good. You're so good that when the wind comes up from the south from the desert, like, you can tell it's going to be hot. You're like, man, a little hot out there. Wind must be coming from the south. You know what I mean? He's like, this is ignorant, though. You're so good at being a Captain Obvious, but you can't recognize that the Messiah is right in front of your face. You know, he's like pantomiming, you know what I mean? He's like, you're so good at looking up in the clouds and and saying the weather, but you can't even see 
that the Messiah, the one you've been waiting on, is right here. You can't even interpret that. Uh, no, no, no. I'm not going to claim that all of you guys are weather people, or weather men, or women, or whatever you are, alright? But, but how about culturally? Don't we spend the majority of our time doing cultural exegete? Most of you could tell me what started on Tuesday. What started on Tuesday on TV? American Idol. Most of you can tell me who won the football games from this past weekend. Who won the football games? New York Giants, Giants, yeah? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, see? Most of you can tell me, like, who the great band The Rocket Summer is. I'm just kidding. They're kind of an underground band. Don't worry about that. Bad example, right? But most of you guys can exegete culture very well. You can share with people like what's happening in the culture and what's going on around us and world news. And you can, you can tell if you watch ESPN like the, all the trouble that Miguel Tejada's in, right? And the controversy that's created in Houston. You, you like, you know all this. But friends, how great are you at exegeting scripture? That's what Jesus is saying. You're great culturally. Doing awesome. Captain Obvious, you're great. You can read the TV, you can listen to the TV and, and communicate it back. You can look at the weather and tell exactly what the weather's happening. But you are horrible exegete of what really matters. So some of you guys are like, yeah, yeah, like I want to be a better uh, exegete of Scripture. I want to be able to read Scripture and understand it. Well, have you read the Scripture this week? No. Okay. Okay. Like I don't... I can tell you what the weather is, though. It's nice outside. It's great. 32, right? What Jesus is saying is that as good and logical as you think you are with culture, like... Like, times that by one million billion, and that's how desperate you should be for exegeting my scripture and my words. You're so good with culture, he was saying, but I'm right in front of you, and you can't even see that. Friends, how many of you, that's happening all the time? Like, all these things are happening around you, and God's hand is all around, and you're not able to recognize it. Because all you've been trying to recognize is the blessings, Right? And so you can't see when God's hand is in catastrophe or strife or struggle. You can see the weather for sure, but really exegeting who he is and what he's doing in your life, if that was what we were exegeting, that's what we'd be talking about, wouldn't it? All that you could share is what he was doing in your life. That's all we care about. Dude, I don't care what you think about the Dallas Cowboys losing. What I care about is how is your relationship with Jesus. That's all we care about. But we're, but we're showing each other that that's not what we care about. Like, yeah, 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 that's all the scripture, all the spiritual stuff. That's awesome. But dude, did you see T.O.? I mean, seriously, right? Like, we're just going there so instantaneously, friends. Could we become so desperately in need of Him that like the culture is not seen through the eyes of America anymore, but we start to see culture through the eyes of the gospel. And then everything around us is how God is moving in us. Jesus closes with a parable. I love this, verse 57. Why don't you judge for yourselves what is right? As you are going with your adversary to the magistrate, try hard to be reconciled to him on the way, or he may drag you off to the judge, and the judge turn you over to the officer. And the officer throw you into prison. I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Now this closes like what seems like kind of a random piece of scripture that we've been dealing with tonight. A lot of hard text. And now all of a sudden he throws in this random like these two guys are having trouble with one another. Here's the picture. These two guys are traveling. 
and one of them has an issue with the other. Like, like there's, there's been some type of wrong. And they're on their way to see the judge or the officer. In this case, it's a Roman debt officer. And what he says is, listen, what he says is, settle the debt on the way. Because you don't want to meet the judge with the debt not being paid. He says, you better take care of it. Because you don't want to show up in the courtroom with the debt having been unpaid. You don't. He's ending this entire chapter 12, which has been awesome to go through verse by verse, with another call of urgency. Saying, you know what? There's a debt that has to be paid. And if you show up in that courtroom and you're trying to push the blame, or you're trying to say, you know what? Well, it was this guy's fault or that guy's fault. I don't, I don't know. Like, what he says is, it's like you're going, to have to be, you're going to have to pay it with the very last penny, which at first glance gives some image that, okay, so you pay and then you get out. No, 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 that's not the way it works. Friends, he paid the debt. And you are on your way right now, aren't you? He's not here yet and you're not dead yet. Here we are on our way to meet the judge. Take care of it on the way. Listen, that is the message that you and I have the privilege of sharing with this world. Come on. That's the message that you and I have the privilege. What, what, a, what a great message. Many of you guys are struggling. You're like, so how do I share the gospel with my friends? Like, that was great. That whole missional talk earlier, that was awesome. But how do I do that? Here's how you do it. There's a debt that has to be paid. Either you paid it or you accept what he paid. He did it all. It is finished. It's accomplished. That's the message that you have to put to, to forth. So, what do you and I do? We accept the message of grace. We get out of the gray area. We stop coddling one another as a church, as a small group, as accountability partners. And we start telling the world that he paid the debt. That's what we start doing. With a great amount of love, with a great amount of passion, with a great amount of fervor, we tell the world that he paid the debt. Because they're on their way too. They, the world, are on their way to meet the judge. And Jesus says, you, you don't want to meet the judge if you haven't paid for the debt. Because he could punish you. He can separate you forever from me. Church, are you ready to stop coddling, and coddling one another? Are you ready to stop, start looking one another in the eye and saying, let's go. The cross is worth it. What Christ has done is worth it. And so you and I now can take this great message of the debt that He's paid and spread it. Because we're not spending all of our time with one another patting each other on the back saying it will get better. Oh, we're patting each other on the back, but it's let's go forward. Let's keep pushing. Put your sin behind. Be quick to repent. And let's go after it together. Can you guys stand with me? Stand with me. Jesus drew a line in the sand. He came to divide. Through Him, He would bring peace to this world. My friends, what more motivation do you need for the mission field? What better message to preach do you need? Do you need a better one? A more creative one? He's given it to us. 
And He's given us the means through the Holy Spirit, through a great amount of power and conviction to spread it to the world. So all I can say is, church, are you ready for that? How will the conversations be after this church service? But not after this church service, like three weeks from now. What will the conversations be? What will the conversations be? Is that what you want, church? Are you ready to get out of the gray area? To release this American perception gospel and say, we want what you made and that's great enough for us. Give us the gospel. Let's pray. God, I ask tonight that you will show us the freedom that we have through your son Jesus. I ask tonight that we as a church will continue to learn how to love each other, continue to learn how to restore one another even gently, but doing that with a heart of quick repentance so that we can press onward in loving those who don't know you, who still have a debt to be paid and haven't been told about Jesus. God, I pray for this church and for my heart. I pray for all of our hearts here. That you'll grab our heart, you'll stir our affections, that you'll reveal the ways that we failed you, and that you will show us tonight the true, real gospel of grace. Let's respond.